So this morning's topic is the beginning of our Easter series called Steadfast Hope. And then we'll be doing that for five weeks. We're going to look at Jesus steadfastly setting his sights towards the cross and the hope that we have in him. So this morning, we're going to focus on Matthew chapter 4, looking at the temptations of Jesus. So what do you do when you're tempted? What do you do when you're tempted to do something or say something that you know is wrong? When a thought hits you that is unkind or unfair or dishonest or rude, before that thought becomes an action or a word, what do you do? Being tempted is not wrong. Being tempted is not sin. What you do with the thought, what you do with the temptation, that can become sin. In April 1997, Hollywood released a movie called Paradise Road. It was directed by, by Bruce Berriford, starred Glenn Close and Kate Blanchett. The film begins in Singapore in 1942 as the Japanese forces begin to overthrow the city. The women and children are hurried aboard a transport ship, which is attacked a few days later by Japanese aircraft. Some of the women and children escape in life rafts or with vests on, and they are captured and taken to a prisoner of war camp in Sumatra, where they spend the rest of the war. Some of the women, highly educated and classically trained musicians, begin a choir and the music they reproduce is beautiful. As the war rages on and the living conditions deteriorate, disease is rampant and the women are dying. The Japanese captors offer them an alternative to prison camp. If they volunteer to work in the Japanese officers club and service the officers, they can live in a hotel with clean satin sheets and hot meals and hot showers. The temptation as the starving women stand in filthy rags in front of a table spread with exotic tropical food, fine linen and silverware, in itself is a cruel torture and some of the women give in. Later in the film, as the war is being lost to the Japanese, there is a scene where the prisoners are herded into transport trucks, some limping and injured, some sick, and they're moved to the most remote internment camp in, Sing in Sumatra. Along dusty, potholed roads, they pass by the colonial mansion that houses the officers' club, where their fellow prisoners now live and work. On the wide, immaculately kept verandas sit a group of women in silk, smoking and drinking tea. And as the trucks pass the women, they see each other, and the utter empty hopelessness in the eyes of the well-fed, clean women is haunting. Despite the obvious pain of those in the mansion, a woman on board the truck says, I knew we should have joined that bunch. And another quips, I think maybe we all should have. As a young mum in 1997, with three small children, that scene haunted me. Doing wrong brought temporary relief from starvation and disease and perhaps even death. Doing right brought more suffering and hardship, but in the end, freedom 
for those who survived. Temptation is deceitful and sly and it is appealing. John Piper says that sin gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. This morning we're going to look at the temptations of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. But before we do, I want to start in a seemingly unrelated place. Bear with me because we'll get to Jesus' temptations once we've set the scene. We're going to look at the Israelites, God's chosen people, as they escape from Egypt. There are three things which tie them to Jesus and what he went through in the temptations in Matthew 4. The Israelites had been in Egypt since the time of Joseph and his brothers. The story is in Genesis 37 through to Genesis 50. They'd come into the land freely and they had grown and multiplied. The book of Exodus begins with a new pharaoh in Egypt and he realises how vast and strong these people are and he decides to make them his slaves. Pharaoh gives the order to kill all baby boys born to Hebrew women to cut the nation down to size. Moses was born at this time and his mother makes a basket of reeds and floats him in a river and he's picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh and he grows up in the palace. He sees the injustice perpetrated upon the Israelites and he loses his temper one day and he kills an Egyptian who he sees is mistreating an Israelite. After this incident, he flees into the land of Midian to hide from Pharaoh. God speaks to Moses and tells him to go and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. So Moses and his brother Aaron go to Pharaoh and ask him to let the people go. After a series of refusals and plagues, God tells Moses to get ready to leave the last plague is the final straw for Pharaoh because he ignores God and Pharaoh and every unmarked household in Egypt loses their firstborn. Pharaoh says to Moses, get out of here, go. And so 600,000 men plus women and children and livestock set off under the guidance of Moses towards the land that God had promised Abraham. They had lived in Egypt for 430 years. But Pharaoh quickly changed his mind and sent his army to follow and capture the people. God parted the waters of the Red Sea and the people passed through. Pharaoh's army was in the process of chasing them across the dry riverbed when the waters come crashing down and drown his army. The children of Israel are free, but instead of celebrating they begin to whinge. By the 15th day of the second month, about 45 days into the journey, they're grumbling and whinging to Moses. Exodus 16 says this, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So Moses goes to God and he provides for them daily manna from heaven. Food for the hungry horde. 
Already, only a couple of months after all the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, they had forgotten the miracle that saw them freed from slavery and safely on their way to the promised land. They had lost their trust in God. The second event that's really important for us as we head into Matthew this morning is from Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, yet again, the people begin to whinge. They are thirsty and there is no water. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why are you testing the Lord? And he says to God, What am I to do with these people? God tells Moses to strike the rock so water gushes out and the people are able to drink. In Exodus 17.7, he says, he, placed, he called the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarrelling, because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord not um, among us or not? The third event that we want to look at this morning happens while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, communing with God for 40 days and 40 nights. The people get restless. They think something has happened to Moses. And they persuade Aaron to make some gods who can lead them. So Aaron collects all of the gold from the people and he makes a golden calf and builds an altar and the people begin to worship this image. God is furious. By Numbers 14, God has had enough of their disobedience and said that none of them, 20 years of age and older, at the time of the census, would ever see the land that God had promised to Abraham on an oath. And so it was that none of them, bar Caleb, went into the land that God had promised them. So the trip that should have taken 11 days took 40 years and all the adults died in the wilderness. With that story in our minds, let's go to Jesus' temptations in Matthew 4. Jesus' temptations are so much more than the way that we read them. Jesus' likeness to God's people, Israel, is amazing. Jesus' family fled to Egypt when all the babies under the age of two were killed because Herod wanted to kill the newborn king who the wise men had visited. To begin his ministry, he passed through the waters of baptism when his cousin John baptised him in the Jordan River and the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness for 40 days. Let's read Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus answered, No, the scripture says people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say... He will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to a peak of a very high mountain 
and he showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Jesus was baptised and the very first thing he does to begin his ministry is not teach in a synagogue, not preach or perform a miracle of healing. He confronts the devil. This very strange duel between the king of kings and the prince of this world has very great significance. Jesus is identifying himself with the chosen people Israel and he is setting his face steadfastly to overcome what they could not. At his baptism, the Spirit of God descends upon him, just like the Spirit descended on all of Israel's anointed kings. Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah. The kings of Israel fought for their people, and the Jews thought that the Messiah king would be part of God's plan to restore Israel and free them from the oppression of the Romans. This is what all of the kings of Israel actually did. The Psalms and the prophets foretold that God would send another great king who would do the same. And I have often been quite critical of the Jews, thinking them foolish that they thought Jesus would be a conquering hero. But I can see that from the fall of the kings in the line of David to the time of Jesus, Scriptures fueled the hopes of the Jewish nation for a renewal of the Davidic dynasty. Scriptures prophesied that God would send a king who would free the Israelites from their enemies and re-establish Israel in the promised land and bring blessing to the world. After centuries of foreign domination, they were longing for a return of, the, of a king in the line of David. Jesus did enter battle, but the type of fight he entered was very different from the kings of Israel. Instead of confronting the Romans, who were the oppressors in of the Jews in Jesus' day, Jesus was led into the desert to combat a much fiercer opponent, the devil. The account of Jesus overcoming the three temptations in Matthew is a reminder that the real enemy of Israel was much bigger than the Roman Empire. The true enemy was the power of sin and death. The beginning of Jesus' ministry was a showdown against evil. Jesus was coming to start a revolution, but not a military one like the Jews had expected. His revolution was internal, inside the hearts and minds of God's people, freeing them and us from the bondage of sin. Jesus didn't come to fight the Romans. He came to fight the root problem, the sin of Israel and the sin of the whole of humanity. If sin is conquered, then Israel will be truly free. And that is what Jesus set out to do in the desert. All through the history of the Jews, the king was seen as a representation of the whole nation. What happened to the king happened to the people. If the king was faithful, the entire nation was blessed. 
If the king sinned greatly, the whole nation suffered for his infidelity. Edward III says, This helps us to understand Jesus' temptations in the desert. As Israel's royal representative, Jesus experienced the same trials Egypt did, um, Israel did during the exile. What happened to Israel in the time of Moses happened to Jesus in the first century. Jesus, in our reading, was tempted three times by Satan. And each time, he referred to scripture, but he referred to specific scripture from the book of Deuteronomy, the words of Moses and the children of Israel while they were in the desert. This is incredibly poetic, isn't it? Jesus faced the same trials they did, but instead of sinning, he remained faithful to God. Symbolically, Jesus undid the knot of Israel's sin. So let's look at the three temptations. The first one is a test for Israel and their hunger. And Jesus' first test was in the face of hunger. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone. And that's the scripture that Jesus quoted. The second test that Israel faced was to do with putting God to the test. Instead of trusting God, they turned on Moses, accusing him of bringing them into the desert to die. And God responded by providing for them water from a rock at a place called Massa, which means the place of testing. Jesus' second temptation was to test God. And Satan says to him, throw yourself down and God will send his angels to save you. And then he twists scripture. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus counteracts him with scripture. Matthew 4, 7. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's where it stops in Matthew. But that scripture comes from Deuteronomy 6, 16. And the rest of that verse reads, as you did at Massa. Israel's third mess up was the worship of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Satan tempted Jesus to worship him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world. This temptation struck right to the heart of the reason that Jesus came. If he gave in to this temptation, then he would not need to travel the difficult pathway that led to the cross. He could short-circuit the journey and control everything, but he would have to worship Satan. Fully human, yet fully God. We forget that this would have been so hard for Jesus. The journey ahead was going to be long and lonely and painful. And Jesus quotes yet again Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So when we face temptation, we have this perfect example. Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Israel, defeated temptation and testing. The writer of Hebrews 4 says, So then since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. 
This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings that we do. Yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The writer to the Hebrews is saying that Jesus faced all the same testings that we do. He made a way for us to get through it. Lust, pride, greed, fear. There is nothing that he doesn't understand. Your shame, my shame, our fear will work against us. If we can't bring our temptations and our failings into the light, then Jesus can't help us deal with it. So don't let shame keep you captive. Dion David says the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will not force us to give up things to him. But when we do, he is faithful and kind and just. All the power of heaven is at our disposal at the time of our need. The famous 19th century English Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, is quoted as saying this, and I love this. What settings are you in when you fall? Avoid them. What props do you have that support your sin? Eliminate them. What people are you usually with? Avoid them. There are two equally damning lies Satan wants us to believe. One, just once won't hurt. And two, now that you have ruined your life, you are beyond God's use and you might as well enjoy sinning. Learn to say no. It will be of more use to you than to be able to read Latin. (laughs) Who can read Latin these days? The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians this. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This promise is not an escape hatch from temptation. It doesn't promise a free ride. It promises a way through, a way to hold up, a way to bear up, a way to endure. God didn't take away Jesus' hunger when Satan tempted him. He gave him verses to remind him who was in control. If gossip is your temptation, you need to replace the bad habit with something else, to see the good in others and to speak it out. To remind yourself that all the power of heaven is at your disposal to break that nasty habit. If alcohol is your temptation, you need strategies and you need support. And God wants to be part of that. You can't just avoid the bottle shop. You need to put other things in place to fill the void and distract you. Spurgeon's advice is excellent, isn't it? If your temptation is lust, you need strategies to help you avoid it. You need something to take your attention. Go to God and ask him to give you what you need. Perhaps you need to be accountable to a life group or to a trusted friend who will pray for you when you face temptation and help you succeed. 
When we bring sin into the light, it loses its power. There is no darkness in the light. In my life group, there are women who have allowed us to keep them accountable to things that have overwhelmed them and addicted them. Perhaps it's pride you're battling this morning. This is a really hard one because if you don't admit that there's anything wrong, how can God change you? Our best prayer every day should be like the one in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is a perfect thought as I finish this morning. Ask God to expose the things that you have hidden even from yourself. The Bible asks us to examine ourselves before we take communion. This time is perfect for us to do just that. Jesus is our anchor. He is our saviour. He is our friend. He is our great high priest and our perfect sacrifice. What he did, he did what the Israelites were unable to do in 40 years of wandering around the wilderness. He undid the knot of sin. He purposely set his sights steadfastly on what God had given him to do. He did not waver to the left or to the right. Near enough was not good enough for Jesus. God has made a way for us to be free from sin, the sin that so easily entangles and trips us up. He has given us a perfect saviour. He has surrounded us with people for the journey. He has given us all that we need to defeat evil in our lives. And he waits, like a gentleman, for you to surrender it to him. Don't try and do this life alone. Don't try and make it by pulling yourself up by your shoelaces. Surrender to Jesus. It's the best and most freeing thing that you will ever do. Amen.